Chapter Three, Part One of Popular History of Ireland, Book Twelve by Thomas Darcy McGee, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter Three, Part One, Administration of the Duke of Richmond, eighteen o seven to eighteen thirteen. Charles, fourth Duke of Richmond, succeeded the Duke of Bedford as Viceroy in April eighteen o seven, with Lord Manners as Lord Chancellor. John Foster, Chancellor of the Exchequer for the separate exchequer of Ireland continued to exist until 1820, and Sir Arthur Wellesley as chief secretary. Of these names, the two last were already familiar to their countrymen, in connection with the history of their own Parliament, but the new chief secretary had lately returned home covered with Indian laurels, and full of the promise of other honours and victories to come. The spirit of this administration was repressive, anti-Catholic, and high Tory to maintain and strengthen British power, to keep the Catholics quiet, to get possession of the Irish representation and convert it into a means of support for the Tory party in England, these were the leading objects of the seven years' administration of the Duke of Richmond. Long afterwards, when the Chief Secretary of 1807 had become the most high, mighty, and noble prince, whom all England and nearly all Europe delighted to honour, he defended the Irish administration of which he had formed a part, for its habitual use of corrupt means and influences, in arguments which do more credit to his frankness than his morality. He had to turn the moral weakness of individuals to good account. Such was his argument. He stoutly denied that the whole nation is or ever was corrupt, but as almost every man of mark has his prize, the chief secretary was obliged to use corrupt influences to command a majority in favor of order. However, the particular kinds of influence employed might go against his grain, he had, as he contended, no other alternative but to employ them. With the exception of a two-months campaign in Denmark, July to September 1807, Sir Arthur Wellesley continued to fill the office of Chief Secretary until his departure for the peninsula in July 1808. Even then he was expressly requested to retain the nominal office, with power to appoint a deputy, and to receive, meanwhile, the very handsome salary of eight thousand pounds sterling a year. In the wonderful military events, in which, during the next seven years, Sir Arthur was to play a leading part, the comparatively unimportant particulars of his Irish secretariat have been long since forgotten. We have already described the general spirit of that administration. It is only just to add that the dispassionate and resolute secretary, though he never shrank from his share of jobbery done daily at the castle, repressed with as much firmness the overzeal of those he calls red-hot Protestants, as he showed at resisting, at that period, what he considered the unconstitutional pretensions of the Catholics. An instance of the impartiality to which he was capable of rising, when influenced by partisans or religious prejudices, is afforded by his letter of dissuading the Wexford yeomanry from celebrating the anniversary of the Battle of Vinegar Hill. He regarded such a celebration as certain to exasperate party spirit, and to hurt the feelings of others. He therefore, in the name of the Lord Lieutenant, strongly discouraged it, and the intention was accordingly abandoned. It is to be regretted that the same judicious rule was not at the same time enforced by government as to the celebration of the much more obsolete and much more invidious anniversaries of Ogram and the Boyne. The general election which followed the death of Fox in November 1806 was the first great trial of political strength under the Union. As was right and proper, Mr. Grattan, no longer indebted for a seat to an English patron, however liberal, was returned at the head of the poll for the city of Dublin. 
His associate, however, the banker, Latouche, was defeated, the second member-elect being Mr. Robert Shaw, the Orange candidate. The Catholic electors to a man, and under the vigorous prompting of John Keogh and his friends, polled their votes for the Protestant advocate. They did more. They subscribed the sum of four thousand pounds sterling to pay the expenses of the contest, but this sum Mrs. Groton induced the treasurer to return to the subscribers. Ever watchful for her husband's honour, that admirable woman, as ardent a patriot as himself, refused the generous tender of the Catholics of Dublin. Although his several elections had cost Mr. Grattan above fifty-four thousand pounds, more than the whole national grant of 1782, she would not, in this case, that any one else should bear the cost of his last triumph in the widowed capital of his own country. The great issue tried in this election of 1807, in those of 1812, 1818, and 1826, was still the Catholic question. All other Irish, and most other imperial domestic matters, were subordinate to this. In one shape or another, it came up in every session of Parliament. It entered into the calculations of every statesman of every party. It continued to make and unmake cabinets. In the press, and in every society, it was the principal topic of discussion. While tracing, therefore, its progress from year to year, we do but follow the main stream of national history. All other branches come back again to this centre, or exhaust themselves in secondary and forgotten results. The Catholics themselves, deprived in Ireland of a Parliament on which they could act directly, were driven more and more into permanent association, as the only means of operating a change in the imperial legislature. The value of a legal, popular, systematic, and continuous combination of the people, acting within the law, by means of meetings, resolutions, correspondence, and petitions, was not made suddenly, nor by all the party interested, at one and the same time. On the minds of the more sagacious, however, an impression, favourable to such organised action, grew deeper year by year, and at last settled into a certainty which was justified by success. In May 1809 the Catholic Committee had been reconstructed, and its numbers enlarged. In a series of resolutions it was agreed that the Catholic Lords, the surviving delegates of 1793, the Committee which had managed the petitions of 1805 and 1807, and such persons as shall distinctly appear to them to possess the confidence of the Catholic body, do form henceforth the General Committee. It was proposed by O'Connell to avoid the Convention Act, that the noblemen and gentlemen aforesaid are not representatives of the Catholic body, or any portion thereof. The committee were authorized to collect funds for defraying expenses. A treasurer was chosen, and a permanent secretary, Mr. Edward Hay, the historian of the Wexford Rebellion, an active and intelligent officer. The new committee acted with great judgment in 1810, but in 1811 Lord Fingal and his friends projected a general assembly of the leading Catholics, contrary to the Convention Act, and to the resolution just cited. O'Connell was opposed to this proposition, yet the assembly met, and were dispersed by the authorities. The chairman, Lord Fingal, and Dr. Sheridan and Kirwan, secretaries, were arrested. Lord Fingal, however, was not prosecuted, but the secretaries were, and one of them expiated by two years' imprisonment his own violation of the Act. To get rid of the very pretext of illegality, the Catholic Committee dissolved, but only to reappear under a less vulnerable form, as the Catholic Board. It is from the year 1810 that we must date the rise, among the Catholics themselves, of a distinctive line of policy, 
suited to the circumstances of the present century, and the first appearance of a group of public men, capable of maintaining and enforcing that policy. Not that the ancient leaders of that body were found efficient, in former times, either in foresight or determination, but new times called for new men. The Irish Catholics were now to seek their emancipation from the imperial government. New tactics and new combinations were necessary to success. And in brief, instead of being liberated from their bonds at the good will and pleasure of benevolent Protestants, it was now to be tested whether they were capable of contributing to their own emancipation, whether they were willing and able to assist their friends and punish their enemies. Though the Irish Catholics could not legally meet in convention any more than their Protestant fellow-countrymen, there was nothing to prevent them assembling, voluntarily, from every part of the kingdom, without claim to delegation. With whom the happy idea of the aggregate meetings originated is not certainly known, but to O'Connell and the younger set of leading spirits this was a machinery capable of being worked with good effect. No longer confined to a select committee, composed mainly of a few aged and cautious, though distinguished persons, the fearless agitators, as they now began to be called, stood face to face with the body of the people themselves. The disused theatre in Finchamble Street was their habitual place of meeting in Dublin, and there, in 1811 and 1812, the orators met to criticise the conduct of the Duke of Richmond, to denounce Mr. Wellesley Pole, to attack secretaries of state and prime ministers, to return thanks to Lords Grey and Granville for refusing to give the unconstitutional anti-Catholic pledge required by the King, and to memorial the Prince Regent. From those meetings, especially in the year 1812, the leadership of O'Connell must be dated. After seven years of wearisome probation, after enduring seven years the envy and calumny of many, who, as they were his fellow labourers, should have been his friends, after demonstrating for seven years that his judgment and his courage were equal to his eloquence, the successful Carey barrister, then in his thirty-seventh year, was at length generally recognized as the counsellor of his co-religionists, as the veritable man of the people. Dangers, delays, and difficulties lay thick and dark in the future, but from the year, when in Dublin, Cork, and Limerick, the voice of the famous advocate was recognized as the voice of the Catholics of Ireland, their cause was taken out of the category of merely ministerial measures, and exhibited in its true light as a great national contest, entered into by the people themselves for complete civil and religious freedom. Sir Arthur Wellesley had been succeeded in 1810 in the secretaryship by his brother, Mr. Wellesley Pole, who chiefly signalized his administration by a circular against conventions, and the prosecution of Sheridan and Kirwan in 1811. He was in turn succeeded by a much more able and memorable person, Mr., afterwards Sir Robert Peel. The names of Peel and Wellington come thus into juxtaposition in Irish politics in 1812, as they will be found in juxtaposition on the same subject twenty and thirty years later. Early in the session of 1812, Mr. Percival, the Premier, had been assassinated in the lobby of the House of Commons by Bellingham, and a new political crisis was precipitated on the country. In the government which followed, Lord Liverpool became the chief, with Castlereagh and Canning as members of his administration. In the general election which followed, Mr. Grattan was again returned for Dublin, and Mr. Plunkett was elected for Trinity College, but Mr. Curran was defeated at Newry, and Mr. Christopher Healy Hutchinson, the Liberal candidate, at Cork. Upon the whole, however, the result was favourable to the Catholic cause, and the question was certain to have several additional Irish supporters in the new House of Commons.
End of chapter 3, part 1. Read by Sibella Denton. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.